the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Welcome back, America. The surprise of the 2024 election cycle is Vivek Ramaswamy in many polls in third and other places, fourth place. He rejoins us on the Hewitt Show. Good morning, Vivek. How are you? Morning, Hugh. How are you? I'm great because the Browns are two and two and the Bengals are one and three. I know you've been busy, but did you see the opener? I just want to know if chaos is a good thing in the Bengals huddle because it looked that way to me. Uh, you know, I have to be honest, I have been disappointed in watching the score of the Bengals, but I've been in near campaign events every time. So I have probably for the better not been watching the Bengals languish. I do think that the comfort of, uh, of Joe Burroughs' comfortable contract probably has not been a great force for good to kick this off, but I'm counting on him getting back on track. Okay, you be an optimist. Uh, yesterday you said a little chaos in the caucus is not a bad thing. One of the things that stands out and I think appeals to people about you is that you want to radically cut the federal government. And I am all with you. If you can take care of the DOE and get rid of it, Department of Education, get rid of it. Great. But you need majorities in the House and the Senate to do that via reconciliation. How does chaos in the House get us majorities? Well, I want to say two things about that, Hugh, because you did make an assertion there that I have a different point of view on about actually the executive's power under limited circumstances to shut down redundant government agencies. I gave a gave an extensive speech at the AFPI about this a few weeks ago in Washington, D.C., and I can come back to that. But broadly, my point is there may be a silver lining as well. Right now, I think the Republican Party for too long has focused on the question of the who. Donald Trump or somebody else. Kevin McCarthy or somebody else. Heck, Ronna McDaniel or somebody else. There was a period of that, too. Without asking the question of the what and the why. What do we actually stand for as a party? Why do we actually stand for it? And I think if we answer those questions with clarity... Then the question of the who becomes that much clearer in every one of those positions. And so what I see in these personnel disputes that frequently are popping up in the Republican Party is that they're symptoms of a deeper disagreement or sense of being lost about what this party stands for and ought to stand for. So I think we should talk more about the $33 trillion national deficit, how big we want the national debt how big we want the administrative state actually to be. Do we believe in incremental reform or do we believe in large-scale shutdown? For my part, I've offered a clear plan for how to, A, reduce the federal employee headcount by 75%, how to use executive authority to do it. One of the limitations that they said limited Trump was the civil service protections, which say you can't fire individual civil servants. That's true, but reading the law carefully, those Limitations do not apply to mass layoffs. They say the president typically can't shut down government agencies. That's true, but under limited circumstances, the president can. 
looking at certain unexpired sections of the 1977 Reorganization Act that say if it's to promote economy or to promote efficiency or to reduce redundant government agencies, then under those limited circumstances, the president does have the authority to shut down redundant government agencies. And so I've offered detail, I think, at a level that is probably unprecedented in recent history and how we're going to shut down and reorganize that administrative state. That, I think, needs to be the top priority. Other Republicans may feel differently. So be it. But let's have the debate on the substance. And then I think once we've aligned on what our agenda actually is, what we stand for, the what and the why, I think we'll stop bickering so much over the who. And that's where I'm coming from. Now, Vivek, it's an interview, not a debate. But I have to note for the audience, I don't agree with your interpretation of the statute. I was general counsel and director of the Office of Personal Management under Ronald Reagan. And I know the authorities of the 1978 Civil Service Reform Act. And you cannot do what you propose to do. But that's your that's your argument. You can make the argument. I don't want to have an argument with you. I want to get to the thing that you didn't get the answer. I want to get to the debate, the last debate. They were very unfair to you. Because I want to quote here, Tim Scott said you were just in business with the CCP. Governor DeSantis said everyone knew you did business in China. Nikki Haley said everyone knew that you had ended your relationship right before you ran. Would you lay out in detail and take as much time as you want the business relationship between your companies and Chinese companies? Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that I was also disappointed in the way that debate was handled. I mean, really, I don't think it served the viewers or voters of this country to have four people from both sides piling on during, you know, particularly ended up being a lot during my speaking time where the viewers can't even discern what four different people are saying, shouting like children. And so that's so I appreciate the chance to have a civil discussion. I actually did refer to this in my first book, Woke Inc. My views, I got to my views in part as a product of, you know, I would think most people do as a product of their experiences. So I, in my first business, Royven, the company that I founded, led a business that opened a subsidiary in China at a time when other pharmaceutical companies, technology companies, heck, most major American businesses were expanding into the Chinese market because that was viewed as a potential new market opportunity. However, unlike those other businesses, I quickly realized that there were serious limitations to doing business in China. And in my time as executive chairman at Royven, led Royvent out of China as the risks of doing business in China became more apparent. Then when I started my next business, and I became probably, you could look at the Fox News to TV hits for the last several years, became probably the most outspoken critic of companies expanding into business in China and the U.S. government's policies on it, probably of any major CEO in this country. Then when I went on to found my next business, Strive, to compete directly with the likes of BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard in the asset management space, I made a day one commitment that no major U.S. asset manager has made to say that we would never do business in China. Because I believe that you cannot be a good fiduciary as an asset manager if you have the boot of the CCP on your neck. You can't vote your proxies for U.S. shareholders in ways that don't take that business interest into account. Take BlackRock. They actually expanded into the Chinese market with their mutual fund business. But only after, and the Wall Street Journal documented this, they effectively did a lot of informal lobbying for favorable listing standards for Chinese companies in the U.S. I didn't want to face that. And that's exactly why when I started Strive, we made that unique commitment that we wouldn't do business in China. And so I I want to go back to my insight. And I want to just point out one more thing since, since you mentioned this. It is a special irony 
that many of those other governors, Nikki Haley included, have courted Chinese companies to make investments in their own states. In Nikki Haley's case, calling China our great friend during her time as UN ambassador. So I think it's rank hypocrisy amongst a class of professional politicians. I I wouldn't expect much more of people who have grown up in traditional politics, but that's the truth of the matter. But in any case, I think we should be having a legitimate debate on the substance rather than devolving into cheap personal attacks, which is what I tried to do on that. And that's why I want to go back to facts, Vivek. Uh, Roy Vaughn entered into something in 2014 called CITIPE, an arm of the Chinese government. Subsequently, you started a new company, Sinovant, with them, and then Sidovant with them. When were, did you go to Beijing during this period, 2017, 2018? Were you there? I, I, I spoke at a conference there. I spoke at a conference there. I went there a couple of times, just like many uh, American okay. CEOs. Give so, us the details, if you will, of how much time you spent in Beijing and how much money went into these two subsidiaries. Sure. So, I mean, this is dated back a while ago, Hugh, and so I... You know, I don't have the exact. I know we're not going to hold you to it. You're exactly not going to get it. sued by the yeah, SEC. Yeah. <laughs> OK. Yeah. But bro, and I'm not and I'm not part of the business anymore either. And so, you know, people can if they want to speak on behalf of the business, talk to the business. I'm not tied to them. But when I was CEO, yes, we went and explored opportunity to see every major pharma company was talking about the frontiers of China. Same for other technology companies and other industries for Royvent. It was no different. Open to subsidiary to develop drugs for the Chinese market, just as we were in other geographies. But in China, there were supposedly reforms to allow companies to more sensibly develop drugs, actually took investment from local Chinese venture capital. Pretty much like everybody else who would come in, inbound to the Chinese market, you do it through JVs. Whatever the industry is, pharma included, that's how it's worked. I spoke at a conference in Beijing. They wanted my perspectives from the West. I gave that to them. I think it was in Beijing or Shanghai. I don't remember made a couple of trips. And you know what? You put somebody who was a developer, I think, from Novartis, was the lead person who had worked at Novartis and Roche and a number of other companies in China, said, put that person in charge of developing these medicines. Now, the reality is things didn't actually prove all that promising. I mean, there was a lot of regulatory red tape. There were a lot of reasons it was unattractive to do business there. The company never ended up making any profit from those Chinese subsidiaries, while it became apparent to me, and the environment in China also changed over the last decade, became apparent there were serious risks to any business in the West doing business in China. So Royvent went in a different direction. Still, while I was on the board and executive chairman, pulled out gradually from China, has no active operations there today. I moved on in my journey. I wrote Woke Inc. and then started my new business, became far more vocal about what I saw the larger companies doing in China, from Apple to BlackRock, to Nike, to others that really concern me. I've laid this out in depth in the books that I've written, Hugh. I can talk about it here, too. Well, what, I, what, what I, I want to get to is I think it's legitimate. Strive with that commitment. I think it's a very legitimate argument to, to say I went, I learned, I left. But I want to know how much exactly. money went into the joint ventures. Do you remember how much money in American yeah. dollars Beijing put into the two ventures? I, I don't remember to the exact amount, but my guess is it was, uh, it was in the millions of dollars, right? It was not in the hundreds of millions of dollars, but it was in the millions of dollars. But it was to start up, you know, drug development's an expensive sport, but it was within yes. the norms of what you would expect to start drug development projects. It ended up being, you know, there was a person from Roche who had previously been at Novartis. These are top experts in drug development and multinational companies doing exactly what multinational companies were trying to do in China, bring competent people to develop drugs potentially for the Chinese market. 
And you know what? It turned out to be a bad idea for a lot of reasons. And I did what many other American CEOs didn't do in leading that business to close its Chinese operations during my time as executive chairman. Then, when I started my next business, made a clear decision based on my experiences. It's exactly how you'd want leaders to lead, I think, you is well, I agree with that. I, last question on Beijing. Were you aware at the time that you went, businessmen often aren't, of the surveillance apparatus and the ability to hack, bug, and put malware into everything you walk around with and carry with you for the rest of your days? Were you aware of that? I was not as aware of it as I should have been, Hugh. But the truth is I learned from my experiences. Over time, traveling to China, we would take different phones and laptops just for that's a, by the by the second trip I went there. That was one of the eye opening experiences for me, too, in realizing the depth of those risks. I hadn't been focused on China, but I did learn over time about the risks of doing business there. And I think that those are risks that American businesses should not take. And more importantly, the U.S. government needs to recognize that U.S. businesses in many cases are vulnerable in ways that leave Americans vulnerable. When I read well, that, about that brings Airbnb me to Hunter Biden those years. That brings me to Hunter Biden. One of the problems with the Hunter Biden traveling with the then vice president to China is that he's compromised and people believe that. Do you believe, even though you may not have heard from them, that there's anything you said or did in your trips to China? I gather at least two that compromise you in any way being president of the United States. Absolutely not. And I think the difference with Hunter Biden is he was selling off his family name to I mean, this is that was, I think, corruption of a high rank order. The fact of the matter is many U.S. business, pretty much every major U.S. business leader, Hugh, has traveled to China in some way. And some of them may have made promises to the CCP as conditions for being able to do business there. I was just bringing up Airbnb, who hands over U.S. user data as a condition for expanding to the Chinese market. In my case, we started to expand and look at whether we wanted to develop drugs in China, ended up being red, flashing red signs everywhere couple of years later, exited the Chinese market and made commitments never to go back. That's exactly how I did it. And yes, I do believe I have a deeper understanding of this than most traditional politicians. And it's why I have been quite likely, Hugh, you can look at my track record on this in the last few years, the most vocally outspoken CEO in the U.S. about the risks of doing business in China. I think that's and fair. I think that's the that's product. fair. I want to move to TikTok. The other, again, you got talked over. Uh, the debate rules I did not particularly care for. The RNC doesn't run the debate rules. The hosts run the debate rules. You got talked over. Something about a TikTok yep. video. I am on the war path against TikTok and have been for four years. It should not be allowed in the United States. It ought to have been banned. I lobbied Secretary Pompeo. They almost got it done. Why are you using TikTok, Vivek? So I've actually been, first of all, as a policy matter, very clear that kids under the age of 16 should not be using algorithmic addictive social media. And so I have, I have strong views on this that overlap with yours, Hugh, and I've been vocal about that. But I also have a radical idea for the Republican Party. We have to win elections within the system that we have in order to have a chance of implementing those policies. And so, yes, initially my view is stay away from this platform for all kinds of reasons. But then you look at the fact that Democrats are winning the youth vote three to one. Many young people across this country, like it or not, young voters are on TikTok. You also look at the Chinese version of TikTok. What are they doing? They're actually over there using teaching math and engineering. Here it's really crap content that permeates TikTok. Is there an opportunity to reach people with substance, reach young people with actually content that is edifying rather than the really 
regrettable content they're getting through TikTok today. And my view is so long as those rules are played the way they are, Republicans need to compete to reach young people with positive messages where young people actually are, unlike Democrats who are doing the same thing rampantly. And I do think it's hypocritical. I mean, there was a certain irony even on that stage. One of the people who was trying to signal her virtue about not being on TikTok and warning Republicans about the importance of not being on it, that's Nikki Haley, her own adult daughter is regularly on it and posting. You might want to take care of it in your own family before you're preaching about it to others. But it just highlights the way in which, yes, we have some real issues in the country. But if we want to fix that country, we're going to have to reach young voters where they are, convince them of the merits of our ideas. That's how we're going to reach this nation forward. And Hugh, I have some special responsibility here as the young person in this race, as the youngest person ever to run for U.S. president as a Republican. We already have been, even long before I joined any social media, we have been reaching young people with this message. What are we seeing in this campaign? 40%, percent of the donors to my campaign, of the six-figure donors we have, are first-time ever donors to the GOP. That number is 2 to 4% for traditional Republicans. I think this is an opportunity for us with a powerful message to inspire and uplift the next generation of young Americans who are hungry for leadership, but they're not just watching. In fact, most of them are not watching cable news or traditional news oh, media God, or no. radio. No, they're not. Reach them with our positive. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Would you explain to people, though, what does TikTok, in your view, do with the data that they accumulate from users' phones? So the truth is none of us know for sure, but we have to be very cautious in the face of not knowing exactly. So I'll be frank with you, and I want to set an example for other people, too. There's a different phone that when I use TikTok, I don't want them, especially as a candidate running for U.S. president. No way. There's a special phone that we're using just for TikTok. That's my responsibility to be cautious, as especially as somebody who's in the profile and the position that I'm in. But the other thing, Hugh, is we have to be eyes wide open to the fact that this applies to any company with an app that's also doing business in China. Yes, it does. Take the Airbnb example. Earlier. Yes, it does. You're we right. have to be worried about any company turning over U.S. user data to the CCP as a condition for doing business there, whether or not there's Chinese ownership of that app. And I'll also observe that probably two, three, four of the top 15 to 20 apps in the app store at any given time are Chinese apps as well. And so are there risks with TikTok? Absolutely. But we also have to be careful to make sure that we don't just exclusively focus on that risk when, in fact, this risk runs rampant in the United States today. 
And before I, I, but I want to move to the Navy, Vivek. Are you still using TikTok today in that separate phone? I, so I am not using TikTok on my phone. My team has a separate account that posts specifically educational content that reaches young people. And yes, I think that so long as the Democrats are playing this game and reaching young voters, Republicans have to use every way in our arsenal, every way, showing up on college campuses, something that I do uniquely as well. I think that we do need to do a better job of reaching young voters where they are. Again, I remind my, not an argument, it's, a, it, it, it's an interview. Last subject, I talked to Governor DeSantis yesterday about the Navy shipbuilding program, so I want to ask you about yours. What are your goals in the first term, the second term, and long term for the U.S. Navy ship count and mix? So, look, I think that broadly I want a pull, I want to pull back from the divest to invest program. We're right now, if we're going to hit that nadir in 2027, 2028, right now that intersects with the peak of the danger window, I would say, for China looking at potentially invading or annexing Taiwan. I would want to smooth that out such that we're not just decommissioning ships, but we're actually advancing ships. Now, right now, I think that the minimums have to be what would allow us to meet the AUKUS agreements without depleting our own capacity. That would be the general metric that I would use. And there's a lot of variables that go into that. But we're very much behind you, as you well know. And so that needs to be where we invest in our own industrial base here at home. That's the way I think about it. I do think there's a role for government to play a role in making sure that that happens far more quickly. I would like to see us on a path quickly in my first term to getting to 4% of GDP as the new floor, at least for the next now through 2032 as the base for U.S. military spending as a percentage of GDP. And a significant percentage of that does need to go to new naval production. But I use the AUKUS agreement as a benchmark and standard to say, how do we meet those requirements in a way that still ensures that we're not going to deplete our own capacity outside of what we're selling to Australia. And I would go further and say that right now our nadir, particularly naval capacity of being able to take on a conflict scenario in Taiwan, would hit a nadir in 2027 to 2028. I want to make sure that that nadir is pushed out significantly in time by ramping up production and also slowing down the pace of decommissioning ships in the South China Sea. So that's broadly so how make, I, I know about AUKUS, but I don't think it gives us a ship count. Uh, have you nailed down a ship count and ship mix yet? I'm not going to give you a, a ship count and ship mix. I'm giving you the broad principles, though, that we will bring to bear as we look. You know, and frankly, take the full look at the picture as I take over as commander in chief as well. But broadly speaking, here are the issues that I see, and the plan is going to be tailored to addressing them. The nadir can't be in 2027 to 2028, as it is with the Divest to Invest program today. And I think that when we enter agreements like AUKUS, committing ourselves to sell certain submarines to Australia, we can't be in a position where we're depleting that capacity. The rate limiter is naval production capacity here in the United States, shipbuilding capacity. And broadly, it is a high priority for me to increase our overall military budget as a percentage of GDP to fill that gap. Those That's are where I was going. Principles, and we're going to you're right. We don't have the defense the, industrial base. Governor DeSantis said that yesterday. Where do you think we can expand shipyard capacity quickly? I think we can do it in, frankly, all of the areas where we already have it today, but also pick new areas, coastal areas as well. I mean, to think about Virginia, think about California. Yes, let's double down in areas where we can excess build that capacity. But I also think that we can look at opportunities to bring an industrial base to this country where we might need actual capacity that 
can, I wouldn't use this as a form of economic protectionism, but can also be a source of putting people back to work and even stimulating the economy here at home. I mean, look at so that brings that me back to yesterday. where we began. And I'm not going to take you long because your staff was mad at me the last time I took you long. So we got four minutes. Uh, chaos in the House will not get you shipbuilding capacity or a defense appropriation. You have to have Congress work. How are you going to get to majorities if the Republicans in the House think chaos is a good strategy? Do you think what Matt Gates did advanced the national security of the United States? I don't think that it long run advances the national security of the United States to not have a speaker in the House. But I do believe in trying to find the silver lining in every opportunity that we're dealt. And so if this spawns, as I hope it does, a serious discussion in the Republican Party, for example, I'll I'll get into one specific detail where I'd like to hopefully see the discussion go, Hugh, is separate the debate about funding Ukraine. And you and I have had that discussion before. From what is a what is an urgent need to shore up our own reserves and capacity for defense here at home, our own stockpiles, our own defense industrial base, our shipbuilding capacity. Let's separate those discussions. And I think we can find far more unity in the Republican Party if we don't co-mingle those issues. So what I want to talk about is the what. What's important? Protecting the homeland right now is vitally important. We are badly, we are badly behind on Missile defenses, cyber defenses, super EMP attack defenses. Think about basic defense of our border. And yes, think about our defense industrial base, which, by the way, to tie this to an earlier discussion we had, depends on China to build F-35s or anything else in this country. It is ridiculous that we depend on our adversary to do it. I think if we see the issue with that clarity, rather than commingling it in large combined bills that tie that to spending to Ukraine, then I think we can find common ground and consensus in the Republican Party, within the Republican Party, where even if there's diverse views on Ukraine, we can actually find commonality on what is actually most vitally important to protect our own defenses here at home, to fortify our own defenses here at home. Last, and last yes, question, today. That's part of the path for how we rebuild a majority with consensus that governs and most importantly protects the homeland and our own industrial base here. I have two minutes and you can take as long as you want in this last question. It's the most commonly posed question to me by texters about you. If you think Donald Trump is the best president of the 21st century, why are you running it? These are obviously Trump supporters. They want to know why you're draining an already major lead away from Donald Trump. How do you answer that, Vivek? Why run against Trump if he was such a good president? So I do think he's a good president on the facts. He kept us out of war and he's also president who saw and oversaw a very successful economy. I have to acknowledge that. And I think it's a mistake that the other candidates aren't. However, I have something that he doesn't. I'm young. I have fresh legs. I'm 38 years old. I believe it will take somebody whose best days in life are still yet ahead. And I hope that's true for me. I don't take that for granted. But I think it will take somebody whose best days in life are still yet ahead to see a country whose best days are still ahead of itself. And Hugh, because I'm a member of a different generation, I think I can reach the next generation who is badly lost in the United States today. Young people are in search of purpose and meaning, hungering to be part of something bigger than themselves, yet cannot even answer what it means to be an American. And yes, I believe I can reach that next generation. 60% of young Americans say they would sooner give up their right to vote than to give up their access to TikTok. 25% recruitment deficit in the U.S. military just last year. 
Less than 16% of Gen Z says they're even proud to be an American. When I look at that next generation, my two sons and their generation, who is best equipped to reach them? I think that's me, Hugh. That's my responsibility. I think that's the most important responsibility, actually, of the next president over the next eight years in office is reviving that national identity, that sense of national character, national pride in the next generation. And yes, because I am a member of a different generation, because I am a millennial, I have a responsibility and an ability to do that. You look at how we're doing it on this campaign already. That's the example I want to set. And what I'll tell everybody in the country who's looking at supporting me is this. When I'm in that office, I think it's been a long time since we've had a president who we can look our kids in the eye and tell them, I want you to grow up and be like him. That's the standard I want you to hold me to. As the father of two young sons, when I leave office in January 2033, my two sons won't even yet be in high school. So yes, I think about not what I want to say on day one as the destination. My destination is January 2033 when I leave office after two terms. All the things I want to do from shutting down the administrative state to growing the economy to declaring economic independence from China. Yes, those are things I want to get done. But the most important thing I want to do, I want to say what Reagan said when he left office in January of 1989, that we revived a national character that we now lack in this country today. And reaching and inspiring and motivating young people is a key part of reviving that national character. And so because I have fresh legs, I think I am the best positioned candidate in this field to do it even though I will honor Donald Trump and his legacy at every step of the way, because that's the right thing to do. That's how we reunite this party. And that's how we reunite this country. The website is Vivek 2024. Thank you for spending. You went two minutes over Vivek, but that's not my, you did that. I didn't do that. Thank you, Vivek. Keep coming back. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good morning, Gloria America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt, live inside the Beltway, fresh from a black tie dinner at the National Gallery last night. I looked for Alaska Senator Dan Sullivan, but he was working. Senator Sullivan is, of course, from Alaska. He joins us. He's also Marine. And Senator, I want to talk to you about Ukraine. Good morning, by the way. How do you feel about our Browns? Good morning, Hugh. Great to be back on the show. Uh, Look, Nick Chubb, probably, in my view, the best running back in the NFL suffered that devastating knee injury so that's uh just horrendous Deshaun Watson is suffering the perennial problem with Browns quarterbacks which is inconsistency but uh underrated defense defense is looking strong so yeah two and two at the break the the Chubb thing is really horrible man that's horrible because he was such a good guy he's the epitome of a Cleveland Browns fan favorite kind of player. Uh, Senator Selman, I got Vivek coming up at the bottom of the hour. I try not to hold it against him that he's from Cincinnati. He's a Bengals fan, but I'll do, I'm just warning you. You may not want, you might get triggered if we talk Bengals football. Uh, Before we get to Ukraine, I want to, I want to read to you. I don't know if you get Ellis news items, news items from John Ellis. This was in the the newsletter this morning, a Substack. a great military purge is underway in China. The absence of key military figures at a dinner reception to celebrate the founding of modern China last week made that fact clear and left Beijing's political circles pondering what President Xi Jinping's intentions are. One of the most notable absentees, Li Shangfu, 65, the state counselor and minister of defense, goes on to explain how vital this is. You know, we're looking at chaos in the House. And meanwhile, China's getting ready for a war. Look, I always talk about, you know, I keep a very close uh, eye on China. I'm still a. Colonel out at Marine Forces Pacific Command in the Reserves, and 
you know, the Marines out at Marfor Pack under Indo-PACOM, that's all they do is focus on China and the Taiwan Strait. And, you know, Hugh, it's part of the nature of this regime. It's not just the Minister of Defense. The foreign minister disappeared. That was, by the way, that was Xi Jinping's, like, top protege. He's gone, right? Probably in a ditch somewhere with a bullet in his head. The, the commander of the missile defense um, unit is gone, disappeared. The deputy commander of the missile defense unit is gone, disappeared. Again, probably all dead, but it just shows you the nature of this regime, the brutality. But I've been asking a lot of questions of our intel agencies. What does this mean exactly to your point? There's a lot of chaos going on. It's, in it's like the Wehrmacht before 39. Hitler just moving people around and dumping them, which brings me to Putin uh, no one has made Tom Cotton comes on and you come on and you make compelling cases why it's in America's national interest to fund the Ukrainian defense of its own country. The president has not made that speech. I don't think he's capable of giving a speech, Senator Sullivan. You worked with him for a while. Why do we need the ch- the commander in chief to come out and spell it out? This is in our national interest. I couldn't agree more. And look, there the, you're right. I have been a proponent of military aid for Ukraine because it's part of the broader challenge, which includes China, this new era of authoritarian aggression. But here's the thing. It makes it tough to make these arguments when the Biden administration and the president keep undertaking policies that undermine this. It's the weapons delays. Hugh, you know, the, the list is so long. It'll take me half an hour to read it, but it's F-16s, it's HIMARS, it's javelins, it's patriots, it's tanks. Every time there has been a weapon system that the Ukrainians need, this administration delays it for months, months. Then they get pressure from the Congress, especially the Senate, and they finally relent. This is part of a pattern. Of course, the weakness of the Biden administration uh, in Afghanistan on the withdrawal, in my view, was the green light to Putin to do this. But we are where we are. And to your question, he is not given a speech. What he does, look at look at his statements on Ukraine. He rips part of the Republican Party. He goes into his MAGA extremism rift. And it's always about ripping people who don't support the policy, which they've screwed up a lot of the policy, as opposed to trying to bring Americans together. He's not given one address from the Oval Office or anywhere else on why this is in the strategic interest of our country. Think about the contrast with someone like Reagan, you know, where he sat in the Oval Office and discussed these important issues with um, the American people. Biden seems incapable of doing it. I agree with you 100 percent. I understand that half of the Republican base polls as anti-Ukraine. That's because they're pro-border security. We can do both. Biden doesn't want to do either, except reluctantly. I want to point out to you in the Financial Times today, the Russian government has said it aims to spend a staggering $108 billion on defense this year, three times the amount allocated in 2021, the last year before the invasion, and 70% more than was planned for this year. They are getting slaughtered. I mean, they are absolutely getting slaughtered in Ukraine, Dan Sullivan, and I do not know how anyone doesn't understand that to be in our national interest. Well, and when you look at the, I agree, and when you look at the number of, Tanks, for example, one third of their main battle tanks have been destroyed. The estimates of casualties of the Russian army, you know, are upwards of up to 300,000. Right. So these are the numbers. And 
But here's the thing, Hugh, that I've been trying to make the case on. I couldn't agree more with you on border security. We have to do it. This is a complete dereliction of duty that the president has an open border. I've been down there. It's unbelievable. It's an open border. And this is because, like so many things in the Biden administration, the far left drives the policy. They want open borders. We had 260,000 illegals come into our country in September alone, the highest number of any month in the history of our country. So we have to shut down the border. But when it comes to Ukraine, I've been talking about we have to broaden the aperture because, yeah, there's a lot of Republicans who are growing skeptical. Part of that is the Biden administration's fault. But what unites Republicans is the topic you were talking about at the beginning, which is China. And I've been saying, quit calling this a Ukraine supplemental. Talk about this in terms of a supplemental to fight authoritarian aggression. That's the issue. And the issue of China and Taiwan in the Indo-PACOM challenges that we see with this aggressive communist dictatorship on the march, and I'm talking about Xi Jinping and China, is something that actually unites a lot of Republicans. It doesn't divide us. And I think we have to start talking about it in that way and ditch the phrase Ukraine supplemental and talk about the broader context of the authoritarian challenges that we're facing with China as the pacing threat for this century. By pacing threat, that's marine lingo for they're the ones that we're going to be likely to be at war with and lose if we if we do not keep up. Now, I want to tell you, because uh, you're a Marine, Senator, I had dinner with a young Marine field officer on Tuesday night. Just wanted to get debriefed. The guy, the guy ran a platoon in Hellman, so you know he was out in cowboy and Indian land doing right. what they do. Right. And he was way out there. And I asked him about the controversy surrounding the Pentagon, and he will not, because he's a good Marine, criticize a people above him. But he does say... I go to the DEI stuff. I don't mind it, but it's stuff I'm not doing with my troops. And I do not mind doing anything, but we still have to train. We still have to prepare. We, we are just not focused as a military. Ha, is the Biden DOD salvageable? Well, look, this is the reason that Senate oversight is so important. You know, we've been um, going through our confirmation hearings of the new members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And trust me, in these hearings and the meetings that we have prior uh, to the hearings on the Armed Services Committee, I grilled down with these generals and admirals on these topics. And here's what I always say. You got one, you got one job. It's lethality, deterrence, and winning wars if called upon. That's it. That's your job. That's everything. All the other stuff, extraneous stuff, is BS. Let me give you one small example. We had the chief of naval operations for her confirmation hearing. And in my meeting, I walked her through the reading list for the Navy. The CNO puts out a reading list, like the Commandant of the Marine Corps puts out a reading list for Marines. In the Marine Corps, you got to read the Commandant's reading list, period. There was so much crap in the CNO's reading list currently dealing with racial politics, sexual politics. I won't even go through half the books. And I looked at her, I said, Admiral, where the hell did this crap come from? You need to focus on lethality, winning wars, the great heritage and history of the Navy, and battles. And that's it. Get rid of this other crap, right? If you, if a sailor wants to read this crap on his uh, free time, go ahead. But the CNO should not be telling the U.S. sailor, here, read how to be an anti-racist, whatever that crap is. Give them so, the Nimitz biography and tell them this is what happens when you're unprepared for war. 
Well, because I give when he... my favorite book, I give him my favorite book, and I would love all your readers to uh, give uh, read it. It's called This Kind of War. Oh, I just Art read it. Gallagher made me read it. Well, Gal, I'm the one who told you know young Gallagher, the young Marine, to read it himself. It is but fabulous. I give it, I give it to every leader in the Pentagon, and I say read this, right? Because this is what happens when America is not prepared. Thousands of young men and women die because of the lack of leadership from senior military officers who can't let Task Force Smith happen again. And do not talk to the president candidly. MacArthur and the president meet on Wake Island. There are already 150,000 Chicoms over the Yalu, and nobody knows. Dan Sullivan, this kind of war gets another recommendation from the senior Marine in the area. That's Dan Sullivan. Thank you, Senator. Go Browns. We'll be right back. Stay tuned, America. When the government used emergency edicts during COVID to restrict the gathering and worship of churches, three pastors facing the risk of imprisonment, unlimited fines, and their own churches being ripped apart, took a courageous stand and reopened their doors in the face of a world that chose to comply. The Essential Church is a feature-length documentary that explores the struggle between the church and government throughout history. This fascinating story uncovers those who've sacrificed their lives throughout history for what they truly believe in. Rediscover why the church is essential and how we prove that this stand remains true from a scientific, legal, and most importantly, biblical perspective. This is not your typical movie. It'll change your life. You need to see this movie with your friends and family. The Essential Church is streaming today exclusively at SalemNow.com. That's Essential Church, streaming at SalemNow.com. Morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I told you I was at a black tie gala last night, ran into Senator Rick Scott, friend of the program, friend of mine. He joins me this morning talking about a piece he had in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. Good morning, Senator. Good to see you last night. It was, it was always nice. To, it's nice to see you. And it sounded like you, I didn't get to stay for the whole event, but it looked like it was going to be a really nice evening. So I hope you had a good time. I did, but I had to land the plane at, at 930. So I was 30 minutes late. So I was kind of like being the United Airlines MC. But there were 600 people there. I know a lot of people had for the exits at those things. But I must tell you, almost all six of them stuck around. But I know you have work to do trying to get the Senate to get serious about spending. Let's get to this Wall Street Journal editorial uh, why did you write it? Did you know that the House would be in chaos when you did? Because it's about spending. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, here, I hope, here's what I hope happens. I hope out of this, the House figures out how to govern itself where everybody is heard, and we actually figure out how to get towards a balanced budget. That's my goal, right? So what I've been doing all this year, after Kevin McCarthy won his speaker's uh, uh, race, I organized a group of conservative, fiscal conservative uh, Republicans, and I invited over and have dinner with them and Ron Johnson, Mike Lee, and some others and, and us every week and say, how do we get something done? We, I mean, I'm, we're, I, I'm a business guy. I want to get something done. I, I know we have to balance the budget if we're going to get inflation down, if we're going to get interest rates down. That's the only way it's going to happen. So, uh, and look, last Saturday, you know, it was a win. We actually, for the first time since I've been up here, the House and the Senate actually acted in concert to try to figure out how we go forward in a fiscally responsible manner. So I know that was a big that was a big victory. Um, and then now we've got to figure out where the House goes from here. Yeah. The fiscal hawks were not in favor of, of knifing Senator McCarthy. Jim Jordan, who's running for his replacement, uh, representing the Freedom Caucus. You have Chip Roy has been on the show a lot of times. He's a fiscal hawk. You're a fiscal hawk. 
there was constructive movement going forward. The most conservative version of their continuing resolution got beat by the knucklehead caucus. I mean, what do you say to people? You, you just can't get there overnight, but you got to get there and you got to take a first step. And when you take a first step, the knives come out over there. Well, what I say to everybody is what's achievable. Let's, you know, is it in, business, in my business life, what I said, okay, so what can I get done today? I'm going to get that done. And then tomorrow I'll get something done. And if you do that over a period of time, I mean, it takes you a few years, but you're, you know, everybody says, well, man, you were an overnight success. So what huh. we have to do as fiscal conservatives is say, okay, what can we get done today? Now, we're only going to get it done with the House. We're not going to get it done by ourselves in the Senate. So we have to get it done with the House. So my goal is we got to be talking to people. So I, I you know, I, I worked with Kevin McCarthy to say, you know, what can we do? How can I help you uh, get things done? That was, you know, my experience in life is that, and it's the opposite of what I've heard of I, my experience up here is if I help people, there's a greater chance the stuff I believe in is going to get done. And so that's what I try to do every day. Now, that is a different planet up there, meaning on Capitol Hill. It's just like going to the Planet Congress when I come in to see someone. Now, um, Senator Scott, I want people to remind, be reminded of what I had forgotten. When you were in the private sector, you started in public housing. Your mom was not rich. You rose up. You took over a giant company. You became the governor for eight years. Then you became the senator for eight years or longer. I'm not sure how long you've been the senator now. What, what were you doing in the private sector? Because when you told me last night that you had at one point 100,000 doctors working for you, my head almost exploded because I can't imagine working. And I, I love doctors to take care of me, but I can't imagine work. That's like working with the Freedom Caucus, uh, the rump of the Freedom Caucus, I the know. knucklehead caucus. You know, what my, you know my experience with doctors? They love what? taking care of you. Uh, so I had I built a company with um, started from scratch and we had 343 hospitals, 135 surgery centers, about 700 healthcare or uh, association, home health care. And we, you know, we were in 37 states, a couple of foreign countries, and we took care of about 150,000 patients a day. And so it was a great, it was a great experience because every day you woke up and you did something positive for somebody. So we had about, I had about 285,000 employees. And then I, after that, I built a variety of manufacturing companies. If you own a Corvette, I made your outer body. So hope, Hopefully, if you have a Corvette, uh, you like the you like uh, the uh, the outer body of your car because I've made that for quite a few years. We, I sold all, I sold all the companies I I bought and fixed up uh, when I became governor. But I love being I love being in business, and I and I what I think about is that if I want more jobs in this country, which is what I ran on in 2010 when I ran for governor, you're going to do it because businesses succeed. So my job is how do I get more businesses to grow in this country? Of course, I don't want them in China. I want them in the United States of America and get people to, to buy American companies or to buy American products. So, Senator Scott, you did not pass go. You did not have to go to the House and, and suffer there for a few years before you went to the Senate. You went from the State House to no. the Senate. I sat last night next to Pete Ricketts, another governor turned senator, and I heard it's quite a change when you go from running things to being one of, of 100 votes. How did you adjust to that? Because, I mean, you don't get to actually decide anything as one of 100. you got to work as a caucus, and that eludes the knucklehead caucus of the Freedom Caucus. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really not, diff- it's not different in business. In business, uh, you might get to make the final decision, but you've got to convince everybody you work with what you're doing. With 285,000 employees, I'm sure most of them thought they were smarter than me. Uh, so you have to convince people that the path you're going down is the right path. And so in, in the same as governor, you've got to convince people. You can be a dictator. And you'll work for a little bit, but that's not generally how you have long-term success. So it's, it's really no different. I've got to figure out, 
if I want to get my stuff done, I've got to figure out how do I get the House to do it? How do I get 60 people in the Senate to do it? And how do I get a president um, you know, to do it? If, otherwise, it doesn't get done. But that's, it's really no different than if you're a successful business people, you, you, person, you've had to figure out the exact same thing. You've got to convince people that your plan is the right plan. The otherworldly part, of, and I've been, in, I've been gone for months. I'm just back in D.C. for a week. And the first thing I see in the Wall Street Journal this morning, I'm go looking for your op-ed yesterday, which I recommend to everyone. And I find a story on the front landing page. Rising interest rates mean deficits finally matter. And I thought to myself, this headline writer doesn't really know that $33 trillion of debt matters every day because it eats up our federal budget because we've got to make interest payments on that. Do people not get fundamental economics in either body? They don't. I mean, think about it. Most people are up here, have taken, a lot of them have been here since the federal debt was $5 trillion. Now it's $33 trillion. What? But, you know, what? They, they, they don't think about it. I mean, they just don't, they just don't think about uh, how it happened. Because partially, partially what happened is, you know, interest rates were low for a long time. Um, but, I, look, I grew up in a family where, like, I watched my mom deal with inflation. I remember that. But think about right now. If you bought a $500,000 house the day before Biden took office, and you bought the $500,000 house today, your monthly payment would be up $1,600. Right? Wow. If you buy a car, my, my daughter just bought a car. She said the interest expenses, interest payment is now 8%. Um, so credit cards, the highest ever. So it's really impacting people. But your federal budget, it's going to be a massive portion it's way more than by the end of this year, probably next year, it'll be more than our defense budget. Just interest expense will be more than our defense budget. And so, and we look at the world, the world's a tough place right now. We've got to invest in defense. Um, but it, our budget, our, our revenues are being eaten up by interest expense. I do not understand how we did not go to long-term debt when interest rates were at 3%. I mean, I know, we're now buying short-term debt at 8%. You, I don't understand I it. Yeah, I refinanced all the debt I didn't pay off as governor. I paid off a third of the state debt when I was governor, over $10 billion. The rest of it I put into 30-year um, debt because I, I got a debt, I think it was like 2.7%, and we locked it in forever. Um, so why didn't they do that when interest rates were low? Because um, if you look at the 10-year treasury, it's going up. It's every week now. It's just yep. trending up a little bit. Mortgage rates are – average mortgage now is almost 8%. I mean, it's unbelievable what – what, uh, and so we're never going to, we're not going to get a budget under control. We're not going to get, you know, interest rate, uh, interest expenses down. We're not going to get inflation down until we balance our budget. We have to, have to, have to, have to balance our budget. So why did Chuck Schumer send the Senate home? I don't know. And why is he going to China? I mean, the Chuck going Schumer's to going to China? Yeah. So, yeah, Chuck Schumer's going to China. I, I, um, there was a lady I talked to. She told, she, she called me. She said, no, my kid died of fentanyl. And Chuck Schumer's going over, over to China to have Peking duck with Xi. That, 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 that I'm kind of stunned by that. I, I know we have appeasers in the executive branch, Secretary Blinken, Secretary Yellen, Jake Sullivan. They've all been to China. I did not know Chuck Schumer was part of the appeasement caucus. And you're right. Fentanyl is killing 100,000 Americans, and it begins in China. Senator, you got a minute left. What do you want the Senate to do next? Because the House is frozen. It may be frozen a long time. I, 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 want, I, want, to, I want to have robust conversations about these spending bills. We, we've got only, we only have 10 full-day working days until the continuing resolution expires. We've got to get on this. We shouldn't. We should not. We should not be having recess next week. We should be here every all through the weekends until we get all these spending bills done. Amen to that. To. 
Senator Rick Scott of Florida, always a pleasure seeing you and talking to you last night and this morning. Thanks for joining me. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be right back on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. We are all rhinos now. Ben Dominich is the editor-at-large of The Spectator, Fox News contributor. And he has noted that we are all rhinos now because unless we are with Matt Gates and the Knucklehead Caucus, we're a rhino. Uh, ben, this is so absurd. I don't think anyone believes anything Matt Gates says. I think he's going to get tossed out of Congress eventually. But I want all nine of the other knuckleheads to be tossed. What do you think? <laughs> well, look, you know, I, I think that, look, you, you have uh, I've used you as, as an example in this in this range of, you know, Stephen, Stephen Miller is a rhino and Hugh Hewitt's a rhino and. You know, Chip Roy's a rhino. Chip Roy's a rhino. You know, yeah, yeah, that's that's my favorite one. But it's just it's, it's it literally this this thing that I, I it's 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 the upside down. You know, it really is the complete opposite of what's uh, you know going on here. And from my perspective, and this is the the point that I've been making uh, or that I was making yesterday uh, when I had the opportunity on Fox was the the fact is that the ultimate result of this. Uh, regardless of who you you know back or who you think should be speaker or anything like that, is a a seeding of power from the House side to the Senate side, and that's something that you know whatever you think of the Senate leadership of the Republican Party right now is going to result in less conservative policy. Uh, and then there's another element of this too, and I think it's really cynical. Uh, and it's the way that the Democrats played this out. Uh, you know, a number of people are pointing out this makes it much harder for Ukraine funding to get through because it's going going to make that issue something that the next speaker is going to have be, you know, very heavily pressured to not bring up. And for Democrats who, you know, talk about how they want to fund Ukraine and these Republicans who are uh, being intransigent and the like, if they were actually serious about that, they never would have gone along uh, with this kind of thing. They would have found a a way forward uh, that doesn't involve this uh, this ridiculous approach because they've made it more likely that the that Ukraine funding is not going to go through to the degree that they claim that they want it to. Uh, and instead, they're just going to turn around and blame Republicans for it. I'm going to talk with Dan Sullivan about Ukraine funding after the break. Senator from Alaska and the Marine, former NSC staffer, very strong yep. supporter of funding. We'll get to that. I want to talk about the knuckleheads, though. Uh, three of them are particular. Matt Gates is just a bizarre guy. But Matt, Maryland, Matt Rosendale wants to be senator from Montana. He thought this would he would pray for this because he wanted a higher profile. Then we've got Ralph Norman and Dan Bishop, who are part of the original five that ballooned to 10. And then they ducked when they realized that Dan Bishop was burning up his own campaign for attorney general in North Carolina. And Ralph Norman was becoming the least popular guy in South Carolina. But they don't get it back. Right. They don't get to get out of this mess by saying, oh, I didn't vote to to vacate this. But they started it. Yeah, no, I certainly don't think that they should. And I, you know, it was funny when Ralph Norman had that that wrong vote just a couple of weeks ago, uh, and and he came out and he said, oh, you know, I wasn't paying attention, and everyone else, everyone on the hill, sort of said that tracks, you know. And so it just look, this this is a this is a true knucklehead caucus. And one of the things that I think that we need to keep in mind, you, is that the way the media is going to spin this is going to be completely inaccurate. They're going to say that this is, you know. Hardline right wingers. I've already seen people saying this and writing it, and that's just not the case. That's it's not, not true. What's going on here? No. It is not true. Hardline right wingers, plenty of them, stuck with Kevin McCarthy because he had actually, you know, done deals with them. He had, you know, uh, give, had give and take, included them in the process, included them as team members. This is about personal animus, uh, you know, fundraising ambitions and ambitions for higher office 
for all of these people. It's not about in any way, uh, you know, some kind of significant ideological dispute. And that's something that, you know, they, if you pay any attention to this, you know that it's uh, the truth. Uh, and instead, the media is going to go along with this fiction that somehow this is, oh, this is, uh, these are the deeply held, principled, you know, ideological, you know, right wingers. And that's just not the case. And we should call them on it when they do it. You know, Ben, I, uh, I was the MC last night, a big black tie gala at the National Portrait Gallery for American Legislative Exchange Council. It's a nonpartisan organization, so I couldn't make jokes about Republicans or Democrats. All I could do is make jokes about Ma- Matt Gates, And they all got laugh lines. I mean, it's hard to get 600 people to laugh because they barely can hear you. But when I asked if um, he had escaped from a lab in Wuhan, everybody laughed. I don't think he recovers from this. Right. Do you? You know, I think I don't think he does either. And I think that one of the uh, real reasons that he's not is because uh, the number one thing, and as I think I've said to you before, that Republicans tell me about this coming year is they care about winning. You know, the, the real reason that Donald Trump, for instance, is currently in the lead is because most Republicans believe that he's the likeliest candidate to win in the general. Um, whether that's true or not, that's the thing that they care about. And I think that when you look at this, look back at this, uh, you know, from the perspective of everything that's going to happen in the, in the coming year, it's going to be the moment that people say, oh, my gosh, that's the point where we, we went off the rails and we, and we really hurt our chances of winning in a lot of ways. And, and if they end up losing the House, I certainly think that Gates is going to be one of the top uh, reasons that people blame. Uh, oh, and Nancy Mace is out. done. Eli Crane is done. But let me let me get 30 seconds from you. There's a huge machine behind a speaker. McCarthy ran a yeah. great machine. Does Can either Scalise or Jordan keep it together? I think it's going to be very hard for them to do that. And and Scalise and Jordan, you know, they, they have, you know, their supporters, they're strong conservatives in, in a lot of ways. But uh, the simple fact is that the Democratic Party took the opportunity to bring in a bunch of ambitious uh, Republicans uh, with personal animus to chop off the head of the number one Republican fundraiser. Yeah, they and took out our patent. Did. They really did. They yeah. took out our patent. The guy who would travel anywhere, anytime, do any event to raise money and profile, recruit candidates is Kevin McCarthy, and Democrats helped the knucklehead caucus take him out. Well done, knuckleheads. Ben Dominich, always a pleasure. Look forward to seeing you on Fox soon. Read it over at the editor at large slot at The Spectator as well. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.